For the last several months, we've been going verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, and so today we come to Mark chapter 14, and we're going to look at verses uh, 12 through 26. We, are now, we have now entered into the passion of the Christ. Everything in Mark's Gospel has been leading up to this moment. Everything in Mark is about the passion, the suffering of Jesus. Now in today's text, it's going to be very easy for you to read it and think this is only aimed at Judas. This text is only aimed at Judas, but I don't think that's correct. I don't. I think this text today is aimed at everyone who claims to be a friend and follower of Jesus. Okay? So this is not just aimed at Judas, it's aimed at everyone who claims to be Jesus' friend. So, knowing that, let's take a look at it. If you have your Bibles, you could turn to Mark 14. If you don't have a Bible with you, the verses will be on the screen behind me. Mark chapter 14, we'll look at verses 12 through 26. Verse 12. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is God's word. So, Jesus here predicts the betrayal of one disciple and the defection of all his disciples. Now, what are we supposed to learn from this? Three things. Number one in your outline today is the universality of sin. The universality of sin. 
The order of events in this chapter is interesting. Jesus suddenly announces that one disciple will betray him. Then the disciples take communion together. Then in the verses right after today's text, we will see all the disciples abandon Jesus. Now, this order of events is not an accident. One commentator explains it like this. He says, quote, In placing the Last Supper between the betrayal and the defection of the disciples, the Gospel of Mark vividly conveys that the sin that necessitates the death of Jesus is not someone else's sin, but his own disciples. Peter and John... You and me, end quote. We take the Lord's Supper here at Gospel Life every week. And you know, every time the Lord's Supper is celebrated here and around the world, the essential problem with the world is present with us. The essential problem is present with us. Years ago, the London Times asked leading thinkers and scholars to write in and answer the question, what is wrong with the world? What is wrong with the world? The famous Christian author G.K. Chesterton sent them a letter in response that contained only two words. I am. Signed, G.K. Chesterton. (laughs) I am. What was Chesterton getting at? Well, he was practicing the doctrine of the universality of sin. See, most of the time, it's just so easy for us to think the problem is out there somewhere. It's those darn Republicans. It's those darn Democrats. It's those darn church people. It's those darn sinners out there. But G.K. Chesterton knew better. He said, oh no, oh no. The problem's not out there. The problem is in here. It's right here. Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, he says, all men, both Jew and Greeks, are under the power of sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God All have turned aside. Together they have gone wrong. No one does good, not even one. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're all sinners. I get it. (laughs) We're all screw-ups. We all rebel against God, blah, blah, blah. I get it. I already know all that. Tell me something I don't know. Well, I am. I am telling you something you don't know. And I'm telling you something that I apparently don't know either. (laughs) You see, if we really knew this, if we really knew this doctrine, if we really grasped it, we would not grapple with so many issues that we often struggle with. Let me just give you one example. Just one example. Although I could give you dozens. Let me just give you one. Most of us have all kinds of trouble forgiving those who have hurt us. We have trouble forgiving those who have caused us pain. 
Now listen, I know many of you sitting here today have genuinely been mistreated. Genuinely. And it was absolutely not your fault. I get it. But you struggle to forgive. You struggle. And hey, look, I'll be the first one to raise my hand and say, I struggle with it too. I've been hurt. I've been mistreated. I've been lied about. And I struggle to forgive. We have been abused. We've been lied about. We've been wronged. And we can't forgive. It's hard. Now, why is it so hard? Why is it so hard to forgive? Because we really don't believe the doctrine of the universality of sin. We don't believe it. Now, we say we believe it, but we don't function that way in real life. You see, in reality, we think that we are better than the people who hurt us. We think we're better. And we think their sin is worse than our sins are. And therefore, we think they owe us. They owe us. And life owes us better than what we're getting. And so that makes us bitter. It makes us angry. It eats us up inside. But if we really grasped this doctrine, it would take a huge weight off of our shoulders. It would. It would be much easier for us to forgive and let go. Because we would see that the truth is we are just as sinful and wicked as the people who hurt us. We are. But that's tough for us to admit. And that's why Jesus helps us here in chapter 14 of Mark's gospel. So that's point number one, the universality of sin. Point number two in your outline is the depth of sin. The depth of sin. Let's look at verse 18 together. Verse 18. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Let's read verse 19 also. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. <laughs> now, isn't this a pretty ambiguous statement from Jesus? Notice that Jesus doesn't say, One of you will betray me, and there he is. You know, spotlight from heaven. On Judas. No, Jesus doesn't do that. <laughs> he doesn't tell them who the betrayer is. Do you think that's an accident? No, it's not. So the question is why? Why is Jesus so ambiguous? Why doesn't he point out Judas as the betrayer? There are two reasons for that. I'll give you the first one right here. And the second one, I'm going to wait until the last point, okay? Reason number one that Jesus is ambiguous is because he wants his disciples and you and me to see that we're all Judas. We are all betrayers. Notice how each disciple responds in verse 19. 
What do they say? Is it me? Well, it's not me, is it? Could it be me? Wait, no. It's not me. Right? <laughs> Jesus didn't have one Judas. He had a room full of Judases. A room full of betrayers. And the sin of betrayal is a sin of motivation. Of motivation. It's a sin that comes straight from the heart. It's a sin that no one can detect on the outside. You can't see it. And so Jesus is saying, one of you is only serving me because I benefit you. But once you think I've stopped benefiting you, you'll sell me off like a slave. And Jesus wanted all his disciples to see that it could have been any one of them. It could have been any one of them. All of them are just using Jesus. They're just using him. But on the surface, you know, it didn't seem that way, did it? Nope. It seemed like Judas and the other 11 were great little church boys. It did, you know, like we said last week, Judas played electric guitar in the worship band. You know, Matthew taught Sunday school. John led a life group. I mean, these were great little church boys. Everyone looked at them as like, wow, these are the best of the best. These guys are the greatest leaders in Jesus' movement. It's the inner circle. These guys are incredible spiritual leaders. They are mighty servants of God. That's what it looked like on the outside. But on the inside, they were all Judas. Every one of them. They were betrayers. And there's just no way to tell on the outside who is a true servant of Jesus. You can't tell. You can't tell who's a true servant and who is just using Jesus as a means to an end. That is, until things go bad. When things go bad in your life, suddenly what's on the inside comes out. When you get cancer at 30. When you have a miscarriage. When your spouse leaves you. When your boss says, this is your last day, etc., etc., Then we find out who's really a servant and who's really just using Jesus as a means to an end. When things go bad, we get to see who's really who. And things for the disciples are about to go very, very bad. Up until now, the disciples think Jesus is about to take the throne of Jerusalem. That's what they think. And so here they are in the upper room, and it's party time, baby. They think Jesus is, woo, is just imminent, you know. He's fixing to take the throne, baby. And so they're laughing, they're cutting it up. 
They're enjoying life, thinking that they're about to get the most prominent seats in this new kingdom of Jesus's. What they don't realize is things are about to hit the fan in a major way. <laughs> and when that happens, we will see who they really are. We'll see every single disciple abandon ship. Every one of them. It ain't just Judas, folks. It's all of them. But hey, let's be real, shall we? You and me, we ain't no different. We ain't no different. Now, we may not be Judas through and through, but we've all got a little bit of Judas in us. A part of us is just using Jesus for how he benefits us. A part of us, when the storms of life come, we will rise up and say, now wait a minute. Where's all the blessings I signed up for? Where's the good life I signed up for? Where's all this peace and joy and rest I signed up for? And we do that because too often we operate under a religious paradigm instead of a gospel paradigm. You see, all religions, including the false Christian version, they all say the same thing. All of them. We've got something like 40,000 religions in the world today. They all say the same thing. Here's what they say. They say, I believe and I obey. Now God owes me. He owes me. He owes me some virgins on the other side. Or he owes me enlightenment. He owes me paradise. Hey, I checked the boxes. I believed. I obeyed. Now you owe me. You owe me. And a lot of Christian pastors around the world will stand behind a pulpit and preach the exact same message. The exact same message. All religions, and including the fake Christian version, operate under that equation. But not Jesus' religion. Jesus' religion does not operate that way. And wouldn't you know it? <laughs> there's only one person in the entire passion narrative who understands that. Just one. And it ain't one of the 12. Nope. It's the woman from our text last week. The one who wasted a priceless bottle of perfume on Jesus. She's the only one who gets it. <laughs> She's the only one who sees that Jesus doesn't owe her anything. She's the only one who sees that in reality, she owes him everything. And he owes her nothing. She's the only one who gets it. 
And thankfully, if you are a Christian, you have a little bit of her in you too. You do. Yes, you have a Judas side. I for sure do. But the Spirit of God has awakened something else in us. Another side. One who loves Jesus just for who he is. Not for what he can provide us. John's Gospel tells us that this woman's name is Mary, the sister of Lazarus. We're told here in Mark chapter 14 that Mary anointed Jesus with perfume. Now, that was not uncommon in those days. It was actually very common to do that. To anoint the feet of your guest was a normal custom. But this text says that the other folks in the room were flabbergasted by what she did. They were shocked and angered at what she did. <gasps> Why? Because of the extravagance of the perfume. That's why they were shocked. You see, she anointed Jesus with extremely rare and extremely valuable perfume. She essentially took the entire net worth of her family and she poured it all out on Jesus' feet. And then we're told in John chapter 12 that she wiped his feet with her hair. Mary went economically and emotionally way over the top. Way over the top. I mean, you can anoint Jesus' feet with $5, not $5 million. That's ridiculous, Mary. What are you doing? And wiping his feet with your hair? Awkward. Awkward. Jonathan Edwards said this. He says, quote, What shocked everybody about Mary's act was its uselessness. End quote. Its uselessness. Think about it. First of all, it was useless to Jesus. Useless. All he needed was a little $5 dab of perfume. Not a $5 million shower of perfume. But it was also useless to Mary. <laughs> it's not benefiting her at all. You see, because Mary had already received everything she could possibly want from Jesus. You see, it was Jesus who brought her brother back from the dead. And so she's not doing this to get anything from Jesus in return. She's not following the religious paradigm. I believe, I obey, and now you owe me. She's not following that paradigm. She's not saying, okay, Jesus... 
Now I did this for you. Now you owe me. I came to church. I put some money in the plate. I played guitar in the band. Now you owe me. It's not what she's doing. She's just wasting it all on Jesus. It's not that it's a bad investment. It's no investment at all. But we often treat church and Jesus' religion as an investment. We get back what we put in. She doesn't give a rip about what she gets back. She doesn't want anything back. She's intentionally wasting her treasure on Jesus. She doesn't want anything back from him. And here we see the difference between Judas and Mary. Judas found Jesus useful, but Mary found Jesus beautiful. Judas served Jesus to get things. Mary served Jesus to get Jesus. Judas used Jesus for the beautiful things he could provide. But Mary saw that Jesus is the beauty. He is the beautiful thing. He is the treasure. He is the treasure that her heart has always been longing for. And when you come to see that, that Jesus alone is the beauty. Well, you'll do some reckless, useless things. You will. Like breaking a priceless alabaster jar of perfume just to wash his feet. Let me give you a real life analogy. When I first started dating my wife, Catherine, one day she comes to me and she said uh, that she wanted me to come with her and her friends to the beach for a few days. Obviously, I was pretty excited about that. I was pretty excited. And so I went to my boss and I asked her if I could have those days off. And she said, no, <laughs> you cannot. You can't give me that short of a notice. And I said, okay, I quit. I quit. <laughs> I quit my job right then and there. Why? Quitting my job wasn't useful. It wasn't practical. It wasn't reasonable. It made my future in-laws upset. and question their daughter's decision-making. <laughs> it wasn't useful, but I didn't care because I had something beautiful that I wanted to be with. And I was going to be with her at that beach no matter what it cost me. I was going to be with her. That is how Mary 
views Jesus. That's how she views him. He is not a means to an end to her. He's the end in himself. He is the end. He is the beauty. And when you see Jesus like that, you do some pretty reckless things too. Some pretty useless things with your life. And within every believer, there is this constant battle between the Judas side of us and the Mary side of us. Paul talks about this inward battle in Romans 7. That's your homework this week. It's Romans 7. He talks about this inward battle that even the Apostle Paul has. And so the question is then, how do we get Mary to win more battles within us? How do we find Jesus a beauty instead of a means to an end? That brings us to our last point in your outline. The end of sin. The end of sin. Let's read verses 23 and 24 together. Verses 23 and 24. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. I already gave you the first reason that Jesus is ambiguous about who will betray him. Now I want to give you the second reason Jesus is ambiguous. Now, Jesus is definitely saying to Judas, I see you. I see you. He's definitely saying that, okay? Judas knows what he's about to do, okay? So Jesus is saying, I see you to Judas. But Jesus also adds a warning. He adds a warning. He says that it would be better for you, Judas, if you had never been born. That's what he says. So, Jesus is warning Judas without unmasking him, without humiliating him in front of his friends. Why? Because Jesus loves Judas. He loves him. In D.A. Carson's commentary on this story, he says, quote, This is Jesus' final act of courtesy and love toward Judas. End quote. Jesus doesn't say, Get out of here, you scumbag. No. He says, Please, my friend. Please, don't do this to yourself. Don't do this to yourself. Don't you see? Jesus is not concerned about what Judas' betrayal will do to him. He's concerned about what Judas' betrayal will do to Judas. That's Jesus' concern. And so Jesus is convicting Judas 
by saying, my friend, I see you. But I won't embarrass you. I won't put you to shame. Behold the extravagant gentleness of Jesus. Jesus doesn't put Judas to shame, and he doesn't put you and me to shame either. No. Instead, he is shamed in our place. You see, in just a few more verses in Mark, Jesus will be stripped naked and exposed for all the world to see. He will be beaten and scourged and nailed to a cruel Roman cross. He will get what all of us so-called friends of Jesus deserve. All of us backstabbers and betrayers. He will bear our punishment in our place. And when Jesus died, so did our sin. Our sin died with Jesus. And so did our shame. So did our regrets. So did the moral law's power over us. They all died with Jesus. We have not been good friends to Jesus. But boy, has he been a wonderful friend to us. No greater love exists than this, that a man should give up his life for his friends. I mean, what do you think the Lord's Supper is all about? What do you think this last meal really is about, folks? Jesus is taking betrayers, turncoats. He is taking his so-called friends and he's turning them into his forever friends. He is doing the work here. He is saying to those who are about to betray him, he is saying, my friends, just as this bread is broken, my body will be broken for you. And just as this wine is poured out, my blood will be poured out for you, for your sins. So, how does Mary win the battle within us? This is how. This is how she wins. This is how the Judas side of us is quietened. And how Mary wins the day.